Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. Welcome back. This week on the show, BJ interviews Nina Jankowitz, the former executive director of the Disinformation Governance Board of the United States. Nina is also the author of one of our favorite books, How to Be a Woman Online, which we've linked to in the show notes of today's episode. Before we get to the interview, Amanda and I wanted to share some suggestions on how you can detect and protect yourself from disinformation. This is a problem that's going to get way, way worse this year, thanks to generative AI tools like ChatGPT. So let's start first with confirmation bias, what that is and how it affects the way we all think. For our purposes, confirmation bias occurs when you see or hear something that conforms to your way of thinking. And because of this, you don't stop to question whether that something is legit. It's okay, we all do it. Our brains are always looking for shortcuts to interpret the vast amounts of information we're exposed to every day. The trick is to be mindful of what information you're taking in, even if it's something you agree with. One way to do that is to ask yourself, does this seem realistic? If you hear or read something and your spidey senses start to tingle, you should always look into it further. This sounds obvious, but it's not. That's because the modern internet is built around keeping you from thinking. Millions of dollars are spent each year by app and website developers to present as smooth and frictionless experiences as possible. And those highly optimized experiences lull us into a state where our brain isn't stopping to think about the information it's consuming. So the important thing here is to stop when we see something kind of crazy and ask ourselves if, if it's real or not. In most cases, it won't be. Speaking of realistic, we should also talk about deepfakes, another problem that will also get worse as the technology becomes more accessible and easier to use. The good news is that deepfakes tend to give themselves away. The trick is knowing what to look for, like unnatural eye movements, awkward postures, and weird facial movements. Here's one example. If the person doesn't turn their head sideways at all in a potentially shady video, you know it's fake. That's because deepfakes only work right now if the person on camera is looking straight ahead. You'll also be able to spot deepfakes from their weird-ass lighting, odd shadows, or coloring issues of the speaker. Another example, as MIT points out, 
is if someone is wearing glasses in a video, you'll notice in a deep fake that there is no glare from the light on their glasses. I mean, I know my glasses always glare over. There's also been a rise in deepfake voices, so people may call you using the voice of someone you know, and you won't be able to tell the difference. If something sounds off or you're unsure if you're talking to the right person, we encourage you to use an old sci-fi trope. Ask that person a question that only they would know how to answer. And if that's too awkward for you, you can always hang up and then text that person to see if they just called you or not. Um, you also want to consider the source. Like in those deepfake videos, pay special attention to audio because more often than not, the audio will give away if something is deepfaked because it'll look out of sync with what the speaker is saying or their words sound weird. Plus, if it's a news source that you've never heard of, I mean, come on, like check, check, check a news source that you know, at least, right? But speaking of always considering the source as well, uh, earlier in the show, we suggested you stay off Twitter. And we want to reiterate that, especially now that anyone can buy a blue check mark. Twitter is, is a place for rampant disinformation, and it's best to stay off of it whenever possible. Putting Twitter aside, though, you should always look at the source of information you're reading or viewing, especially places like YouTube, where their algorithm is prone to suggest content from Nazis, white supremacists, and other members of the far right. You might have also encountered news and information from websites and apps passing themselves off as legit news sources, but are actually propaganda outlets made to look like local newspapers. This is what in journalism is called pink slime. So if you come across statements or stories that seem crazy, make sure to look at who's behind them and see if that information is being verified by other sources more than just Wikipedia. A good rule to follow is that if you haven't heard of the media outlet or source, then you can safely ignore it. Just one more thing on the social media front. Look carefully at the username and when the account was created if you come across something that doesn't sound right. Lots of new accounts get created by Russian propagandists and other bad actors the closer we get to each election. Another good trick is to look and see who's following that account. If it's a bunch of people you recognize as noted journalists or other public figures, then the source is probably okay. Look at the handle name and when it was created on social. Then look at who's following it. Are they crazy people? A good telltale sign is if the people following an account are all white guys with sunglasses who take a picture of themselves while driving. If you see them all following an account, you can safely disregard whatever that account is saying. Looking at the date of the creation also applies to news stories and other articles you might come across. Oftentimes, bad actors will try to recycle old information about someone in order to smear them. And please, please, please read the whole article before sharing it. I feel like this should go without saying, but again, the internet today isn't designed for us thinking critically or even oh deeply. It just happens to me, Amanda. I read an article that was such a clickbait and I clicked on it and the article had nothing to do with what the title was. Oh, but you didn't share it, did you? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, right? It, and I'm sure we've all experienced it, like myself and Rosie. Sometimes reading an article all the way through is the only way to tell if it's actually sponsored content, since websites are also being increasingly shady about identifying that kind of content because they want to make money. And also in the, in the B2B space, right? You have a lot of guest posts that exist for no other reason than to look useful, but really promote services provided by the company who wrote it. So don't, don't share anything that you haven't read all the way through. I can tell you sometimes I'm guilty of this, where I, where I look at the headline and it's from someone that I know, and I'm just like, oh, I'll share it. But then I, that very well could have been a sponsored article, right? 
This is much, much easier if you control your news consumption as well. Most of us are drowning in information that we don't need. So if you can prune the sources you go to for information, it'll give you more of an intention span to work with to actually finish the stuff that you're reading. Um, limiting your news consumption to no more than half an hour a day, maybe, and cut down the number of sources you go to in order to fit within that content. And one last point, reading or watching all the way to the end is a good way to identify if the article or video is meant to be a joke. Um, you may find a label at the bottom that says parody, for example. Oh my God, that is such a good one. I've definitely clicked on something and I'm like, is this real or not? And then I'm like, okay, obviously this was a satire. So that was good to know. Yeah, it's not, it's not always the onion, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you have doubts or questions about something you're reading or watching, take a moment and Google the author. This is a good way to see if first the person is real or not, and second, that the person has previously written about this sort of topic and has demonstrated experience in the area. You can also do a reverse image search of their author photo to make sure they're a real person. Reverse image search is one of the most important tools we have for spotting disinformation, especially regarding AI-generated photos. Like deepfakes, as the technology gets better for the AI image generators, there'll be more and more of these fake author photos being used by bad actors. If you do a reverse image search, you can see if anyone else has run this photo or identified any potential issues with it. It's also a good way to see um, if someone has kind of taken your own content, right? You can use reverse image search, but that's a that's a whole nother that's a whole nother thing, right? But on all of this, uh, we want to recommend sites like factcheck.org and PolitiFact. Um, both are great resources to see if an image, video, or news story that's making the rounds is actually real or not. Scopes is also a long-running and reputable, reputable source too. Either way, we hope some of these tips will help you deal with the flood of misinformation heading our way. Now let's go to BJ and his interview with Nina Jankowitz to talk about her own experience with being the subject of a disinformation campaign. In next week's episode, we'll cover how to protect yourself if you become the target of a disinformation campaign. So let me ask you, I mean, speaking of, it's, I think, a good way to segue into um, what, what I want to talk to you about was your two books, How to Be a Woman Online uh, and How to Lose the Information War. Um, with, I figured we would start with How to Be a Woman Online. Sure. It, it came out um, just as the pandemic was starting to erupt. So I'm curious if there's anything that you wish you could go back and, and add to it. Um, so the, the second one, how to be a woman online actually came out later. That one came out just in oh, April. Um, how oh, to lose sorry. the information war came out uh, at the beginning of yes, the pandemic. Of my, yeah. Um, and so the, um, the audio version of that, I think includes the prologue, which I wrote on the, uh, inauguration day for, for Joe Biden, um, a couple weeks after January 6th. So I did, I was able to add a little bit, but certainly I think there has been, um, a lot and a lot of work done in particular on COVID disinformation and um, and that sort of stuff that that would be kind of a whole different book. And I'm sure there are people writing books on disinformation related to the pandemic. But I think, you know, surprisingly, even though I started the research for how to lose the information war in 2017, um, it has held up really well. And I'm not yes. just saying that because it's my, yes. my book, but like a lot of the research was done at 2017, 2018. It was all finished by 2019 and published in 2020. And, you know, I think I stand by a lot of the conclusions that like, we're not going to be able to fact check our way out of this. Uh, government agencies need to communicate trans transparently when they're trying to do um, counter disinformation work. And, and frankly, that, you know, we all need to uh, think about our role in spreading 
disinformation and governments and um, and and civil society organizations, et cetera, need to think about how we arm people to be uh, equipped to be on the front lines of the information war. So I think all of that still really holds true. Um, and it is maybe even more borne out by the pandemic. Yes. Um and then the second book uh, was kind of a child of the pandemic, you might say. Um, and I think, again, if anything, you know, the the tools that are in how to be a woman online are more important as our online selves become an extension of our offline selves. And like that that line, which probably never existed between the online and offline, gets even more blurred um, in times when we're all stuck at home to some extent. I mean, we're heading into another winter. I hope that vaccines, you know, keep us safer. But I think there will probably be a retreat into the more private spaces and, uh, and we'll be relying on the Internet for a lot again. Right. Uh, yeah, I just have to say, How to Lose an Information War, it sounds like it was written yesterday. Like, it, it, it it's very, it holds up. It, I appreciate it reads that. Great. It's, I found, it's, but what I found, like, it's almost like you're in a horror movie, <laughs> right? And you're, and you're yelling at the screen for, for us to do something as you're describing, like, the killer creeping up on everyone. That's, that's sort of the vibe that I got from, from the book. I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So so why can't you get off? So what, <laughs> what are your... <laughs> you guys. The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy. Helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. said I was kind of a Cassandra early on for for these topics. And unfortunately, um, I don't think a lot has changed since then. I've been giving a couple of speeches this fall and uh, I've been drawing very heavily on that book and the experience that I had uh, earlier this spring with my appointment to the Department of Homeland Security and kind of the way that the rollout of the, the organization that I was meant to lead went and how the lessons that I brought to bear at DHS, just nobody listened to. I, you know, despite my best efforts, um, the rollout went very untransparently, unefficiently, um, and uh, and frankly, you know, just ignored many of the things that I, I write about in that book and some of the other work that I've done. So I, I'm not super optimistic <laughs> about where we stand right now as a country in terms of fighting disinformation. And um, I think the fact that we are you know, headed into a midterm season in which 60% of Americans will have someone who denies the 2020 election results on the ballot shows that we're not in a good state when it comes to kind of the truth in America. That's my congressional race right now is there's a gentleman, there's a gentleman who's, um, of course, draping himself with I love the cops, I'm pro cops. uh, But he was on the bus the morning of January 6th, uh, rallying the troops. 
that they were wow. people on their way to stop the steal. He didn't go himself, but he was there to jazz them all up before they left for Washington. So that, yeah, yeah that's sadly, uh, as you mentioned, the case for uh, more than half of all Americans. Let me yeah. let me ask you, what was because that I, the thing that stuck out to me is that as I finished how to lose information war was okay. What happens when it when we do try to act? What happens when we do bring this up to the government? What I, what was the biggest challenge? Do you think was it just the size of the, the organization? Like what what do you think the challenges are of actually making change to stop this stuff from happening? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's our our polarization around this issue in particular is so entrenched right now that anytime you bring up the disinformation word, the right. D word, uh, among kind of um, bipartisan company, it automatically becomes like this divining rod for like a, a party purity test. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, in every congressional testimony I've ever done, I've always talked about how disinformation is not a partisan threat. It's a democratic threat. It's a threat to the system. Um, just because it's favoring one party right now doesn't mean it might shift soon. And then, you know, we're all going to wish that we had found a little bit more bipartisanship at this time. And instead, we have people who are profiting off of the very tactics that Russia used in 2016. Um, they're entrenching themselves in power that way. Um, and then we have a Democratic Party. So so let's be clear, that's the Republicans, not all Republicans, right. but but most right. Republicans. Um, and then we have the Democrats who just don't seem and I think, you know, the, the experience that I went through is, is part and parcel of this, don't seem to be willing to stand up to those lies. Um, they don't seem to be willing to call them out. And I think it's very different to say, okay, you know, let's find a bipartisan pandemic relief package or like, let's find a way to arm Ukraine and do that together. That's, that's very different than calling out lies. Right. And yes. I think we got so comfortable during the Trump administration with these very outlandish totally incorrect things that the president was saying and not calling them by their real name, not saying they were lies. We'd be like, oh, like falsehoods or misstatements, right? They were lies and they were deliberate. Um, And we hoped that things would just kind of go back to normal in 2020 after the election results. And, you know, as Joe Biden became president and uh, instead what happened is this became even further entrenched. And I think you know, the Democrats don't know what to do about it now. They don't know how to. I'm not saying we should fight fire with fire. I'm not saying that we should hit Republicans with their own medicine. I don't I don't want to do that. And I've frankly written about that and why we can't do that in Russia. I don't think that that is the the way that any small D Democrats who care about democracy should operate. But I do think we need to get better at countering the lies as they come out. And um, in DHS's case, I, I mean, it was it was a failure of communication across the department. It was a failure uh, of communication within the interagency and up to the White House. Um, it was a failure on the part of, of the department by not listening to the person that they hired to lead the effort and, and you know, talk about I had spent the entire time I was in DHS trying to get us to do a transparent rollout of, of the board because it really was just an anodyne working group. But I knew that if it were taken out of context and we didn't communicate properly about it, this is exactly what would happen. So. I don't, there's no one one reason, but I think yeah. there's a broad misunderstanding of like how governments communicate and the way that the internet works, which is like a sad thing to come to the realization of um, that you know 
our government is so huge and so hulking. It's just not set up for the most part to counter these industrial strength lies that move at the speed of light right now. Other governments can do it, uh, but they're much smaller than we are. And so I think we need a concerted effort to get our heads out of our asses. Uh, And that hasn't happened yet, no matter how many times me and people like me have have rung the alarm bell. Let me let me ask you, do you think this is something you hear a lot is that the age plays a factor of the people in government versus people outside of the government that are kind of rallying and pushing for things that that there's, you know, the, the people think about Zuckerberg lying basically to Congress and getting away with it because the level of technological expertise was what's a Facebook, right? Or what's an Instagram? Did, yeah. did you did you encounter that at all? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I think in general, um, the Biden administration communicates like it's the 1980s. Um, and they've done some really interesting um, kind of mimetic uh, engagement online. I'm thinking in particular of uh, when the student loan relief package came out and we had so many Um, members of Congress uh, who had benefited from loan relief during the pandemic uh, being called out by the White House Twitter account. Um, But that was a millennial um, who was running the Twitter account at that time. Right. right? Um, And, you know, more power to her that she was able to to get that through. She's actually from New Jersey like me. uh, And she used to run the New Jersey Twitter account, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. I thought that that was good. But um, but when it comes to an agency like DHS, yeah, there's a lot of people who have never thought about the Internet before. Um, in general, our federal departments communicate in a very boring, professional, um, 10 times, you know, uh, sign off uh, has gone through like every policy iteration and every edit possible. Um, and I think we need to learn how to get out of our own way. And that's improved somewhat since, you know, Twitter came on the scene and Obama was the first Twitter president. So let's not forget that this hasn't been forever. Right. Um, but, yeah, there's a lack of understanding of how technology works and uh, and frankly, you know, what what the downside is with the um, what the kind of effects can be if you don't anticipate and proactively communicate online and communicate creatively where, you know, your target audiences are going to be. So just, I mean, from my own example, the way that the DHS board was, was rolled out with so little information left a vacuum of information. Then they didn't fill that vacuum when there started to be kind of hubbub online. And as a result, the people who were aghast whether that was you know fake incredulity or or true feelings because i'm sure some people thought that you know this actually was a ministry of truth because that's what they were told by news organizations like fox um i think that led to a lot of um intense scrutiny over me and my personal life and that's what was like really difficult um frankly because the administration didn't have my back and didn't realize that by not saying anything about the work that we plan to do, it was putting me in a really difficult and frankly unsafe position at eight and a half months pregnant. Um, uh, you know, just for having taken a job in my area of expertise. So, um, that's what they didn't understand. And I think they hopefully learned a lesson, a hard lesson and, 
I hope that, you know, for the next young woman who tries to take a position, whether it's related to disinformation or not, they're ready to stick up for that person. But my fear is that having seen what happened to me, fewer people and especially women and women of color are going to want to take positions that are in the public eye in public service, because frankly, it's not that lucrative, right? (laughs) You don't get paid that much. Uh, There's a lot of BS that goes along with it. And then, you know, in addition to all of that, you might get doxxed and get hate mail for the rest of your life. Um, So I, I, it's a really unfortunate way that things turned out and uh, I'm doing everything in my power now to try to make things better for those who come after me. So I'm not, I'm not going to shut up, you know, like I'm clearly here talking to you. I've done other media. I'm going to continue writing and I'm working um, now with an organization called the center for information resilience, which is based in the UK and they do open source investigations to counter disinformation, document human rights abuses and combat online harms against women and minorities. And we've launched, something called the Hypatia Project. So Hypatia of Alexandria was uh, a teacher in ancient Alexandria, mathematician, philosopher, kind of one of those all around thinkers back in the day. And uh, she was this really well-respected woman ahead of her time. Uh, Very few women were, were in those fields back then. And she would teach in the ancient Agora and teach, you know, tolerance and Uh, coexistence between all the different religions in Alexandria. Um, And she found herself kind of a counselor to the city's governor um, and then found herself uh, essentially being um, really somebody who bore, uh, unfortunately, a lot of society's ire. So uh, those there were clashes between the different religions, and they pinned all of the problems in the city on her because she had the ear of the governor and literally tore her from her chariot and ripped her limb from limb. Um, a, a, a mob of men did this. And uh, so we named the project after her. Um, the digital agora, the internet, is uh, important just as the ancient you know, agora and, and kind of open air classroom was. And so uh, our hope is that we can make the internet safer and more civil for everybody, um, but with a special focus on on women and minorities. So looking at exposing the operations that are meant to drive women out of public life and silence us, um, looking at the link between online and offline violence, not only here in the United States, but in places like Myanmar and Afghanistan, where we've done research that shows that uh, in Afghanistan, for instance, um, there is a link between women protesting this in the streets and online violence against women, uh, harassment of women online. And then in Myanmar, there's a link between political violence and the doxing of, of women activists. So um, we're going to continue doing research like that and hopefully, you know, um, working toward accountability for the people who launch these campaigns online. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. That's amazing. Tell, tell me where, where can people get involved? How can they contribute? How can they support this? Yeah, sure. So um, our website is info-res.org. And uh, I think on Twitter, our 
We've got a bit of a weird Twitter handle. It's at Sen number four info res. <laughs> um, one of the other things that we do is uh, crowdsource a lot of open source investigations into conflicts around the world. So um, Ukraine is one of the ones that we're focusing on right now. And we've got a uh, Ukraine monitor map that um, has crowdsourced, I think, something like 12,000 different incidents in Ukraine since the beginning of uh, the second invasion, the one that started uh, this February. And so you can look there and find um, incidents that have been triple verified by our investigators. So people will upload, you know, troop movements or um, a missile strike or targeting of a humanitarian convoy or infrastructure, et cetera. And our investigators will verify that it happened, which is a really powerful tool because uh, here we have, you know, just this week when uh, Kiev was was attacked with a bunch of missiles by the Russian Federation, um, we had the Russian Federation say, Saying, oh, you know, it's it's possible that Kiev staged this. Um, similar, we have you know folks who carry water for the Russians, suggesting that uh, the the huge crater in the middle of a park that I used to go running in, in in Ukraine when I lived there was actually a failed missile defense system. And, and like, no, it's clearly a a missile crater, and we can verify that with our investigators. So um, we like to throw cold water on the uh, the lies that the Russian Federation is telling about Ukraine and about um, about other conflicts around the world. World. That's awesome. Um, let me ask you real quick. I just parted. Uh, that's the puppy. Uh, that's that's right. uh, She's very excited. My sister's home. Uh, <laughs> let, let me ask you, how much of this is Russia versus how much of this is just people acting on the Russian tactics once it became known? Uh, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the Republican operatives. Like, I think it's important for people at home to understand just as you detailed in your book, like this goes back years. This goes back to 2010 with Putin, how much of it is him versus other bad actors? Yeah, I mean, so it's hard to kind of unpick the relationships between um, Russian propagandists and the people who are authentic Western actors who tend to kind of be what we'd call in Russian fellow travelers, right? So they might um, uh, distrust the U.S. government. And so getting their news from RT or Sputnik or listening to what Maria Zakharova, the Russian uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson says, you know, it makes more sense to them. And so they're, they're more likely to kind of amplify that stuff. Uh, organically, as it were. But uh, I, I wouldn't put it past Russia because we've seen these sort of relationships before where Russia is actually paying PR companies um, in Africa or paying influencers in France in order to launder their disinformation narratives about Ukraine and about other conflicts and other issues as well, um, and paying for that content to appear online. So um, I think the most important thing to, to do is just to kind of cross-check your sources particularly when it comes to Ukraine. There's a wealth of open source evidence that's being shared right now. And um, I think it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's a lot easier than it used to be to verify what's going on on the ground, um, especially when you compare it to the beginning of the conflict back in 2014. Um, when Crimea was illegally annexed, you know, we we didn't have a lot of social media footage. Um, people, you know, the smartphone was a lot less ubiquitous and people weren't uploading easily, you know, footage to YouTube, to TikTok, to, to Twitter. Um, and that has really changed. This conflict might be one of the most documented conflicts in the world in, in all time. And that's you know, but by virtue of the fact that it's eight years later. Um, but uh, but we have a lot of information about what's actually going on on the ground. And so if people want to look at that, um, it's easy to uncover the truth. 
Let me ask you for for people at home uh, who are frustrated that the government might not be as quick or as equipped to help. What is something they can do to to help fix that? If is there anything they can do to help fix that? Well, you know, I think there's a couple of things. Good old participatory democracy um, has its benefits, right? So definitely go out and vote in November. Um, vote for candidates that you feel are being truthful. Um, that's really important. Uh, donate to your local public media station. I think that's critical as well. We know that NPR and PBS are still among the highest trusted outlets in the United States. And, uh, you know, you might think they're they're supported uh, just by taxpayer, taxpayer funding, but it's actually something like a dollar and 39 cents per person yes. per year um, that goes to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting from our taxes. So I think we can all afford more than a dollar and 39 cents. So um, if you can kind of support those, those public broadcasters, they do such important work connecting local news to uh, to local audiences. So they often cover news deserts all around the country where there's no other local news. Um, they cover Washington through the lens of whatever local network that they're they're working through. It's just such important work. So um, that would be uh, another thing that they can do. And then, you know, write to your representatives. If you think this is a problem, people uh, often forget that, you know, these, these folks in Washington and at the state house are certainly serving at the pleasure of their constituents. And when there is a letter that comes in, somebody on Capitol Hill, somebody in your capital city has to read that. Yeah, they might be an intern, right? But uh, if you and your your fellow citizens in your, your jurisdiction are writing letters about how you'd like them to support a particular bill, or you'd like them to bring something like that up on the agenda, or if you are unlucky enough to live in uh, a district of one of the people who were defaming me, for instance, you could say, you know, it really dismayed me to see how you attacked this woman. Um, I'm not saying I'm not asking you to do that. It's just an example, right? Um, but when you see something like that, it's worth registering either your approval when they're doing something you like, your disapproval, or asking them to to advocate on behalf of you. And if if truth is something that you care about, um, I think that's that's worth registering uh, with your representatives. I know I, I've said this before. I, I hope you sue each and every single one of them. Like, honestly, uh, well, it's interesting, BJ. You know, you can't you can't sue uh, representatives for stuff that they've done in their official capacity. Um, so the fact that they were doing that in their official capacity on the floor of Congress, uh, they are protected, and um, and that is something I learned <laughs> this year. Oh man, that's yeah. I think that's good for people to know as well. That yep. there's a shield. Uh, I'm sorry, I have time for one more question, so I want to make sure. sure I ask. I what I found. The most powerful about how to be a woman online is that you're talking to future women that that want to get involved in roles like this that might come under the same sort of BS that you had to deal with. What's what's something that you want to say to them? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is to hold your ground, right? Um, it can be really difficult to be a woman on the internet. To be a woman in the world, frankly, can be really difficult, and. There are people who don't want us in fields that are male-dominated, national security, journalism, academics, whatever. And it's important for us to be there. So I'm going to keep doing this work uh, to make sure that I hold that space for you and hopefully push the envelope a little bit farther. 
And I hope that they'll do the same. We need their voices. I don't want them to disengage because of what happened to me, because of what happens to other women on the internet. Um, in fact, it, it shows that we need them even more. So I yes. hope they will uh, will put their voices out there and you know contribute to our democracy because it's not a real democracy if we don't have the participation of women. I totally agree. Uh, and one from one musical theater learn to another. I, I just I couldn't thank you enough for the work that you do. Uh, and well, it's my pleasure, and I'm glad somebody out there likes my TikTok video. I still stand by it. By the way, thanks Tucker Carlson for all the millions of views you gave to me. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was wonderful. Most things people hate about the internet comes from a lack of privacy. Those creepy ads that make you think your phone is listening to you. DuckDuckGo is an all-in-one privacy app that can help you with that. It's your internet browser with private search, tracking blocker, encryption, and even built-in email protection, all for free. Just go to DuckDuckGo.com to learn more. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So, along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy, which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. If you'd like to know when the course becomes available, you can email bj at bjmendelson at duck.com. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? <laughs>